Well, before we um, dive into John 6 next week, Lord willing, I want to conclude this mini-series on uh, fighting the fear of man, how to be mortifying, inordinate, people-pleasing. Um, make a quick promo, as I did last time. There's a couple good resources. This book here, I'm standing on both of these guys' shoulders. Uh, Pleasing People by Lou Priolo. Very helpful book. Um, convicting. And Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing by Richard Baxter. A little booklet here. Uh, fantastic. I think a few of you guys pick, picked it up uh, last time we were together. I got about four or five more copies here. Um, it's yours for free. Uh, not this book, but the, um, so come grab it if you want it. Uh, we'll be quoting Baxter a little bit more this morning. Um, just by way of review, I don't want to spend too much time reviewing. So we got a lot of content to get through. So let me just uh, show you the points that we covered last week. We talked about why is this an important topic. Um, is it always wrong to please people? Which we said no, and went through a few of the places the Bible commands us to actually be pleasing people. Um, the whole series is not to tell us to be calloused, hardened people. I don't really care about uh, other people at all. Um, that's not what we're talking about. At what point is pleasing people a sin? So when does it cross over that line? What is the heart of this sin of people-pleasing or man-fearing? And then how is man-pleasing a dangerous sin? Um, and again, if you are interested in the answers to any of those questions, I encourage you to go back and uh, hear last time's lesson. Um, before we jump in, I just want to hear your um, thoughts and what you remember from last time. So um, look at... Uh, Number number four there, what is the heart of this sin of people-pleasing? What do you remember from last time? What really gets to the, the heart of the issue? Um, why is it a big deal? Remember? Self-glorification. Good. Self-worship. Yep. Excellent. It is yep. self-focus, self-worship. Good. What else? Elevating what other people think of us higher than what God. Good. Yep. Yep. And and we uh, we parked on that for a bit last time. It said it's fundamentally the sin of idolatry, right? Isaiah two twenty two. Stop regarding man in whom is breath. Um, that whole section is about idolatry. Um, stop elevating man to the same level as God. Um, giving man the fear, reverence, obedience, and focus that only God deserves. Good. Why else is it a big deal? It's the emphasis of God. Good. Yep. Very good. Yeah, it's helpful because it's it's not only not simply that I am focused on others, right? It's really I'm focused on myself. Um, and and the person that's a man pleaser um, is actually unable to love other people, right? Because other people only exist as a means to what? The ends of my own praise. Um, I am actually unable to please people, number two, as I biblically ought to, because my focus is only on how I can get them to give me praise, to give me focus and me attention. So it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big deal. We also talked about why it's a dangerous sin. Uh, we had four things there. It takes you from the work of God. Obedience to God is limited and controlled by men's approval. It's enslaving and never-ending. Um, 
It saps uh, from us the energy which ought to be spent on God's priorities, and it is the sin of a, of a hypocrite. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. So this morning, I want to talk about a few more things and sort of focus on now, how do I go about detecting it in my life, and then how do I go about putting it to death in my life? So the first point here is how to detect it in my life. And we already answered this question to a large extent last time. Um, but my goal under this point is to just think through some of uh, the significant heart issues that are connected with this, attitudes that we might see in our lives, which we need to be tracing back to this fundamental root. And one of the things I want to help us think through is that as I see sinful attitudes in my life, there's almost always a sinful worship attitude underneath that's giving rise to these. So you don't just need to be repenting of anger, let's say. It's the thing that's fueling it. And often worship of myself, fearing man, pleasing people, um, is fueling a lot of sinful um, attitudes and actions in my, in my life. Um, you've probably noticed we, we've used this phrase, fear of man and pleasing people interchangeably. Um, that's because uh, they are, they're inseparable. Um, I fear that which I love. And we don't normally put those two things together, fear and love, right? So I fear spiders, uh, not because I love them, but because I hate them, right? Um, but really, if you think about it, I don't ultimately fear spiders, right? I fear what a spider can do to me. Um, it can bite me, it can inflict pain or injury, or just the overall feeling of nastiness, right? that you get from touching a spider. Um, what I really love is being healthy and, and pain-free. And the same, it works on the same way in the spiritual realm. I fear man because I love being thought well of by other people. I fear that I might lose people's favor, which I love, and incur man's displeasure. And it's the same in our relationship with God. Um, fearing him means that I fear incurring his displeasure. Why? Because I love him. I fear him because I love his approval and take his opinions and judgments seriously. See? And so fear is a form of worship. It's an expression of what I truly love, value, cherish, and it's a reaction to anything that might threaten it. Okay? So fear is a form of worship. It's connected to what you love. So with that in mind, um, I want you to look at this template I provided you. Um, hope everyone has a pen. I should have provided those. I'm sorry if you do not. Um, I'll just show you the, this chart here. We're going to work through it. I just want a little bit of uh, interaction with you this morning. We're first going to look at it from the angle of uh, our response to the displeasure of people. So I've put this in the fearing of man category. When people are displeased with me, or there is a chance that people could be displeased with me. Over here, from the angle of when people are pleased with me, the pleasure of people, or when there is a chance that people could be pleased with me. And then we respond to both of these situations in similar ways with either fight or flight. What I mean by that, by fight, um, I mean actively attacking the situation in order to overcome any obstacles to it. By flight, I mean passively turning inward um, at the situation. Um, and both uh, produce sinful responses. So 
um, if you're still a little vague what I'm talking about, we will work through it and try to fill in the, uh, the blanks here. So first one, let, let's do the, the displeasure of people. Um, situation where people are displeased with me. Um, or there's a chance that they might be displeased with me. Uh, what does fight look like in that situation? Actively, aggressively attacking the situation to change it. Being controlled by their displeasure. What do you think? Yeah. I guess making a sacrifice on something that you feel is right. Okay. You have a, Excellent. Or you draw the line and you make a session. Good so compromise. Compromise. Yep. Yes. Very good. Very good. What else? Okay. Defensive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Defensive. Um, angry. Yeah. Yep. Pushing back. Um, won't receive criticism. Critique. Right? Maybe there's legitimate um, critique coming. I need you to be receiving. Um, I fight that by, I don't want to hear that. What are you talking about? You don't know me. Push it back. Yep. It could even go as far as discrediting the person who is Good. who you perceive to be yeah. displeased with you. Yep. Undermining them, calling them names. Good. Slander, gossip. Yep. What else? It's a form of blame shifting, I guess, yeah. right? So deflecting. deflecting. Yeah. sinful attitudes and, and actions, right? But you can see there's something underneath it that we need to be repenting on that level as well or else all these attitudes and actions are just going to keep popping out like dandelions in the, in the grass. Flight. What about flight here? Turning inward? Um, passively turning inward? Despair? Self-pity? What do you think? Bitterness, uh, um, um, bearing a grudge, right? Get somebody. I just like abrupt, just abruptly end. Hmm. I'm done. I'm leaving. Hmm. You know, I'm not gonna listen. Now it's good to Yeah. Giving up on relationship, on the, on the job, on whatever it is. I think there's also something like false humility, in hmm. the sense of like, oh, you know, like you take the blame, but you really don't. Situation, or you are lying to yourself in my hopes of moving forward without addressing it. Good, good, yep, possibility. Let me show you what I have. You got about all of them, so good job. Uh, anger, slander, revenge, doubled efforts I put there. 
Um, so I'm falling short before displeasing me in a, in a non-biblical issue. So I'm gonna just put all my focus now on, on doing better at this, right? And uh, again, it might not be a simple thing. That's my motivation. That's the all-consuming focus then of my life. Depression, discouragement, reclusiveness, sort of drawing away bitterness. What about to the pleasures of people? Um, I have a chance of people uh, pleasing me or praising me. What does fight look like in that situation? So I guess if I've done something and uh, it's people are responding with praise to me or people are satisfied with me or there's a chance that I could make them satisfied with me or yep. so maybe parading yourself right um, fishing for compliments so look at the back of your outline I, I stole this from Lou Priolo so I will give him all the credit um, <clears throat> This is word for word. It's in his book on page two of three. Um, let me just read these. Um, pretty funny, but see it in my life. Um, how to go fishing for compliments. A, by intentionally putting yourself down in the presence of others, in the hopes that they will disagree with your assessment. Sounds something like this. That was one of the worst performances I've ever had. That was awful. I can't believe I did so poorly. What are you doing? You're hoping, no, no, it's not that bad. It's great. B, uh, by asking people to assess your performance in one area and the hopes they'll praise you in another. Tell me, don't, uh, do you think uh, I held the microphone too close to my mouth? Right? What are you, what are you looking for there? Uh, you're looking for them to compliment how well you did singing. C, by continually bringing up as a topic for discussion the activity or achievement for which you want to be praised in the hopes that sooner or later you'll be committed for your accomplishment. So what did you enjoy most about the service, right? You had some participation in it. Um, didn't you just love the pastor's sermon this morning? I sure did, but it paled in comparison with your solo you sang for the offertory. Right? Um, so past not bringing myself up but knowing I will be connected in some way. Um, by praising others who have similarly achieved successes in the area which you excel. Doesn't sister so-and-so have such a wonderful voice? I wish I could sing as well as she. It's very subtle and we are masters at, uh, at fishing. We really are. And, uh, it's all fueled by what? A preoccupation with the praises of people elevating their opinions uh, and their values of me uh, an inordinate focus on myself what about flight what does flight look like here I just gave you what I have uh, for sake of time self-defacing self-deprecating sort of going with false humility self-criticism man I'm just so bad or I just never get good or what are you doing? You're trying to get the focus. You're trying to get pity and sympathy on yourself. So these are all ways in which you can detect um, people-pleasing, man-fearing in your life. These attitudes popping up. Um, 
repent of those attitudes, but no, there's something fueling them underneath. So be on the lookout for them. Um, it's a worship issue. So that prepares us for the next point, how to defeat it uh, in my life. Um, and under this point, I want to uh, help us not only put off the wrong thinking, uh, but also to put on the proper thinking and the proper worshiping. This is going to be a battle for the rest of our lives. We're sinners. This is one of the, it means to be a sinner with indwelling sin. But in Christ, there is hope and there is the command that such change um, can happen in your life and it won't dominate your life. It will always be there in a temptation, but that through the spirit and through faith, these cravings and then this domination in our lives can grow weaker and less influential, and that's what we're after. Um, so how do you do that? How do you go about putting this to death? Look at the first one. Before we can do any of the things that we're going to list, we must respond to its presence in our lives with repentance and faith in Christ. Run to the gospel. We must be willing to call it what God calls it. That's why we've spent so much time talking about the worship aspect to it and why it's a big deal. We must humbly admit our failure to him and own our guilt in this matter. This means diligence and seeking out its manifestations in, in our lives. Always on guard now, looking out for it. Not, not hyperactive and, and, and overreactive, but, but a genuine, I'm just going to keep watch now uh, for these manifestations in my life. Proverbs 28.13, what does that say? What do you know? Do you remember it? Whoever conceals his sins, transgressions, will not prosper, but whoever does what? Confesses and forsakes them. Confesses and renounces them. Say the same thing about it. God says, and actively war against it. Renounce it. He has what? Mercy. Mercy. So that's where we begin. We begin by genuine repentance, confession. We must also respond with fresh faith in the gospel. It's the precious gift of grace, um, number one, to be exposed. That's a gift of God to you, to be exposed and see your sin. Why? So you can run afresh to the gospel, run afresh to Christ who bore the wrath of God for you, to Christ who never pleased man as his motivation once in his life. Run to him, trust him, and begin there. And that really leads us to the next point. Replace it with the fear of the Lord. Now, that sounds obvious, but we're going to flesh that out a bit. Replace fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Well, well obviously. Um, but how do you do that? What does that look like? Let me begin here with uh, how do you do it? It begins by being reconciled to God through the gospel. So you see, we started with that first point because it's essential to growing in the fear of the Lord. As we do the first point, as we run to the gospel afresh and know the forgiveness and reconciliation with God through the gospel, it will overflow into a true fear of the Lord in our lives. And the order is very important. If we should try to cultivate fear of the Lord in our lives first and clean ourselves up in this area first, before we come to him for mercy, before we come to him for 
grace and acceptance, then we will first miss the gospel, and we will actually never be able to progress in the fear of the Lord. You have to get the order right. Well, why? Why is it so important you get the order right? It's because fear of the Lord grows out of an awareness of God's favor towards me in the gospel. In other words, so long as you have God's judgment looming over your heads, the preoccupation of your life isn't going to be knowing him, pleasing him, focusing on him. What's it going to be? I want to avoid him at all costs. I don't want to think about him. I want him out of my life, right? Go to Psalm 130 with me. Love, love this verse. It's so foundational for how we begin this process in our lives. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, it's the same. Psalm 130, look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Is that true? If he could just mark the iniquities in this area of fearing man and pleasing people, who could stand before him? All we have is judgment. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Total forgiveness of every one of those iniquities on the list. That's the good news of the gospel. But what is the end goal? What is the proper response? Look at the end of verse 4. That you may be what? Fear. See that? What's the connection there? Fear is the result of gospel grace. Fear of the Lord is the result of having received his forgiveness. It's because through forgiveness, we've been enabled to stop living our lives seeking to avoid this holy God out of fear of condemnation, which was looming over my head. But now it's the duty and delight of my life to live in the presence of and in conformity to this holy God. So if you're caught out in a thunderstorm, lightning, hail, tornadoes, whatever it is, you hate it. You want to get out of it. All you can think of is, I want to get away from this. I'm terrified of it. It's not the joy of my life. But let's say you find a way into a shelter, a strong shelter, windows, and you're safe. It can't get you. You can look out the windows now enjoy the majesty and holiness and glory and live happily in the presence of this massive storm right outside. That's what it's like. Grace enables us to live lives which truly fear the Lord, knowing we've been completely forgiven and now reconciled to this holy God. And the pursuit of our lives now is knowing him and living like him, being conformed to him. So let's go to the next one now. So how do you cultivate the fear of the Lord in your life? Begin with the gospel. You need reconciliation to him. We're not trying to overcome fear of man in order to gain acceptance. We start with his grace. And then it grows as we live a life of faith in God's word. You say, again, that sounds obvious, Michael. Um, But it is very practical. Um, We talked a lot about the fear of the Lord when we talked through Proverbs a few years ago. Who remembers what we said about that if you were here? Do you remember how we define the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs? I'll just give it to you. It's not in your outline. Um, the fear of the Lord, we said, is that heart attitude, 
which has humbly submitted to, stands in awe of and fearful reverence of, and by faith joyfully, so it's a joyful aspect to it, lives in light of all that God has revealed. There's the scriptures. Everything he's revealed for us and everything he's done for us, the gospel. Um, what God has declared to us in scripture, we, we believe it, humbly submit to it, tremble before it, and let it dictate everything in our lives. That's what it looks like to fear the Lord. Go to Proverbs 2 uh, with me. Look at it really quickly. Proverbs chapter 2. And we get a crystal clear answer. How do you cultivate it in your life? Look at verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You'll truly know God, which means what? Having a relationship of fear with him. That's the promised result. Where does it come from? Look at verses 1 through 4. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. It will be cultivated in your life. You can't do it apart from revelation. Apart from the scripture. It takes every part of God's word seriously. It's what the fear of the Lord is. It reckons God's word is infinitely valuable. Um, it pursues everything in its life to know it and to apply it and filter life through it. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. Careful obedience to what God has declared in his word. Say it another way, the fear of the Lord is to live a life of faith in his word. You want to cultivate fear of the Lord in your life? Know his word inside and out and learn to filter your life through it and form your life to it. It comes through faith in the scriptures. Number three, it comes by living in light of his promised judgments and promised rewards. Bruce Waltke said that to fear the Lord is to believe that God's promises are true and his threats are real. You believe his promises are true and his threats are real. This point really is just a development of the previous point, right? How do you know his promises and his threats? From the scriptures. Um, but what is it specifically that we know um, and largely are controlled by? It's the truth that God is judge. God is judge. He sees everything. He is holy. And he has promised perfect retribution for good and evil. Perfect retribution. And you're sitting there probably, you're saying, well, Michael, you began by telling us that we fear him because we've already been forgiven, right? So what's all this judgment talk, right? How are you saying we begin with forgiveness of sins, but now we got to be concerned about judgment again? What do you mean? Well, God's judgment still applies to believers. He's still your judge. He's your savior. Praise God. Without that, all we have is judgment. But he's still your judge. And judgment works out three ways um, for believers, particularly. So let's look at these really quickly. I don't want to spend too much time here, but just to 
explain. Um, you need to be concerned. He's still your judge. Not in the sense of condemnation, but in the sense of your Lord and your Master. Number one, um, God's judgment is his evaluation of the authenticity of our faith. Um, he evaluates our works. Your works matter. Um, we will be judged according to our works, not as our works are the foundation of our salvation. Christ alone is. But our works do what? They testify to the genuineness of the tree, right? The fruit bears witness to the kind and condition of the tree. You'll be judged according to your fruit. They evidence. Has true faith taken hold in your life? Has true repentance taken hold in your life? Um, you can go to Romans chapter 2, 6 through 11, 28 through 29. So the fear of the Lord believes this. The fear of the Lord strives to make my calling and election sure. It examines my life. Does my life align with the profession that I make? You will be evaluated uh, by the Lord. Number two, how does the judgment apply? God's judgment involves his discipline for sin. So we're in Proverbs. Go over to chapter, 11, chapter 3, verse 11. His fatherly discipline. It's not his wrath. He poured that out on Christ. It was consumed totally by Christ. And he'll still discipline. There are consequences for sin out of his fatherly love and kindness to you. Proverbs is full of warnings that you're meant to take seriously. Right? Verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves the one whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the fear of the Lord hears God's warnings, his judgments, and it takes it seriously. He's a father that will still discipline. You know, Mike, uh, yeah. Hebrews chapter 12. Yep, it quotes Proverbs exactly, 3. Exactly, yep. yeah. It's good. Right so this isn't just Old Testament stuff. Yeah. Right? Good. Number three, God's judgment involves his final retribution to people for their works, good and evil. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. The context here is um, ministry in the local church and um, using gospel materials to build the church. The principle applies, though, to all of life. Look what it says here in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, as Paul speaking, I laid a foundation, the church, gospel foundation. And someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day. What is that? It's the final day of judgment. The day will disclose it. Disclose what? The kind of work that was done. The kind of materials that were used in building the local church. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
See that? There's massive reward for faithful gospel ministry and for faithful living in your lives. There's reward. If anyone's work is burned up, exposed to have been um, poor building materials, he will suffer loss. There will be loss on the judgment day. But look at the encouragement here. Though he himself will be saved, you're not going to be condemned. You're in Christ. You'll be saved. But only as through fire. That is only as through purging. You'll suffer loss. So God's judgment still applies to us. There's no condemnation. We're in Christ. It's something to take seriously. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It centers around the judgment of, of God. So look at the next point. How would Paul counsel us on this point? And we're, we're in the same context. Flip over to chapter 4. And you see why it's called the fear of the Lord. It's a joyful thing. We're reconciled to him. There's also a trembling aspect to it, right? He's a judge. He's holy. He's to be taken seriously, and that's a good thing to, to feel that. And the gospel keeps you from being um, overly um, paralyzed. So how would Paul counsel us um, here? Let's read it, verses 1 through 5. And Man, I wish I had a whole class just to do an exposition on this uh, passage. It's so good. If you want a passage to memorize, um, to battle the fear of man in your life, this is the one. It's five verses. Um, Memorize it so you can pull it out over and over and over again. It's so good. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one ought to regard us. He's talking about himself, Paul and Apollos, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his praise from God. If you want to mortify the fear of man, memorize that, guys. Let me just pull out four points here. Know your identity. In verse 1, Paul says this is how people should regard us. How do you want people to regard you? How do you want people to think about you? This is what Paul says. As servants. That word is as an under rower. Um, this time of year, Easter, I usually try to watch Ben-Hur. How many people watch the old Ben-Hur, right? You've seen him in the galleys, right? Rowing. That's what it is, an under-rower. You're a slave um, to him. You only exist for his purposes. He's your master. He's the captain of your ship. You have no identity apart from him. Is that how you want people to regard you? I'm a servant. I'm a servant and my steward, Paul says. Steward of the mysteries of God of the gospel. I've been entrusted with the task and my only job and my only rights center around Christ, where he's commanded me. He's my Lord and my master. So know your identity. That will guard you. Number two, remember life's objective. If you are indeed a servant and under rower, what's the only thing that matters? That you be counted faithful, trustworthy, right? 
Can you be found faithful? It's the only thing um, that matters, that my master is pleased. Number three, remember the futility of any judgment other than the Lord's. Look what Paul says here in verse three. He says, with me, it is a very small thing. It's a little thing. If I'm to be examined, the idea, this is all courtroom language, cross-examined by you or by any human court. Paul says, I don't even examine myself. Now, Paul obviously here does not mean he doesn't examine his life, right? How do we know that from the very next verse? I'm not aware of anything against myself. So apparently he does examine his life. Apparently he is open for people to examine him, point out faults. I would say if you are enslaved to the fear of man, you will not do that. Right? He means ultimately. Ultimately, it's a very small thing how you evaluate my ministry. It's a very small thing how I even evaluate myself. Why? Because I might not be aware of anything against myself, but I'm not by that acquitted. The Lord judges. Right? It's a small thing. And if in my life the fear of man is holding sway, it's evidence that's not a small thing. It's evidence that I've forgotten some of these truths that Paul is giving here. I've elevated the opinions of people to not be a small thing anymore. Remember how futile it is. Remember how insignificant it is ultimately. Number four, expect the exposure of the coming day. In verse five, he says, when the Lord comes at the return of Christ, there will be a, a judgment. It says he'll bring full exposure on everything that was hidden, all the good that went unseen, all the evil that was done when no one was looking, he'll expose it. But it goes beyond actions. Look what it says. He will expose the purposes of the heart, the motivations. That's the important thing, what's underlying it all. So often we may receive displeasure of people because they don't see what's going on in our hearts. And our tendency is one to defend ourselves and then put ourselves up. Paul says, rest content, he says. Rest content with being misunderstood. Rest content with being wrongly evaluated. Why? Because the day is coming which will expose it. It will disclose the intentions of the heart. And it says, each one's praise will be by God in that day. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what we look forward to. That's what you ought to be looking forward to. That's all that will matter. Listen to Richard Baxter on this point. Um, it might be a little small, but it's in your outline. It's just so good. I had to quote it all. It is God only that passeth the final sentence, from whom there is no appeal to any other. Things shall not stand as now men censure them. Many a bad cause is now judged good through the multitude or greatness of those that favor it. And many a good cause is now condemned. Many a one is taken as a malefactor because he obeyeth God and doth his duty. How many will judge, will God judge heterodox and wicked, which men judge orthodox and worthy of praise? And how many will God judge orthodox and sincere that were called heretics and hypocrites by men? Oh, what abundance of persons and causes will be justified at that dreadful day of God, which the world condemned? And how many will there be condemned? That were justified by the world. Oh, blessed day. Most desirable to the just. Most terrible to the wicked and every hypocrite. How many things will then be set straight that are now crooked? And how many innocents and saints will there have 
a resurrection of their murdered names that were buried by the world in a heap of lies and their enemies never thought of their reviving. Oh, look at that final judgment of the Lord and you will take men's censures, but as a shaking of a leaf. That's good. Live in light of the day. It will settle all accounts. Well, that brings us to our final point. We have just a couple minutes here, and I'm not going to spend much time on it. Um, it's really the flip side of the coin, right? Pursue a life that pleases God through Christ. Um, we often are sort of surprised at this, that we can still please God and displease God. I thought he's already pleased with us, right? We're, we're in Christ. How could he ever be displeased with us? And it's very similar to the judgment. Judicially speaking, he is fully satisfied. That never changes. It doesn't go up and down based on your obedience. He's satisfied with you as judge because of Christ. But we can still experience his fatherly displeasure. And we still can bring joy and delight to his heart because he's our father as well. So let me just give you a, a list here of ways that please God. Um, just look them up. Just over and over Please him, please him, please him, please him. You can bring delight and pleasure to God's heart, or you can displease him, and that should concern you. He really is concerned about that. It really does bring him joy and gladness to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and it really does grieve him to see unbelief and despising him in your lives. But why? Why should we be concerned about this? We're his slaves. Same point. Look at these other passages. It makes the same point. Talking about the pleasure of God. Because we're servants. It's only, the only thing that matters. You're not a servant of man. You don't belong to them. Aim at pleasing Christ. And then finally, because of the judgment. You said, Mike, we've already gone around these bush, this bush before, right? Um, but it, it comes up over and over. Go to 2 Corinthians. We'll close here. Look how Paul brings these together. 2 Corinthians 5. 6 through 10. I'll read it and we will be, be done. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. And, and listen to how Paul brings the motive is to please Christ with the coming day of, of judgment again. Verse 6, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we make it our aim, our ambition. What's the ambition of your life? What's the aim and pursuit of your life? Here it is. It ought to be to please him, bring him pleasure. Why? Verse 10, for because we must each, in Greek it's so specific, it's each one appear before the Bema seat of Christ, the, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Your bodies matter, whether good or evil. Judgment is coming. It's good news for believers. No condemnation that's been settled at the cross. And yet there will be an evaluation. There will be a reward, recompense. Aim at pleasing Christ. It's the only thing which will matter. 
And it's a life of faith, right? Because we don't see it right now. We have to take God at his word, believe it, trust it. Just close with this. What, what are some evidences the fear of the Lord is out operating in your life? Um, read through those. Be careful of private as well as public obedience. Um, eager to know the scriptures. Treat all of God's commandments when people wait. Concerned with your motives. Um, be more a selfless person. You'll be stable and not surprised by criticism. You'll be eager for others to show you your faults, and you will deem the evaluations of people likely in comparison with God's. So we're over time. Any questions, comments on this? I know I had to fly through. I wanted to jump into John 6 next week and wrap it up this week here. So any thoughts? If you want, um, Richard Baxter, um, come grab a copy. It's really good. And, uh, strongly recommend it. Grab Lou Priolo as, as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you how good you are. Thank you for the gospel. If you marked our iniquities, Lord, we, none of us, would be able to stand. But with you, there's forgiveness. Lord, let us live not pursuing, avoiding you anymore. We're reconciled to you through Christ, forgiven. Every single one of them, and free not to live in light of your holy presence devoting our lives to pleasing you, obeying you, taking you seriously, filtering our lives through every bit of your word so that you would be pleased, your name would be glorified. We would be filled with joy in you. We love you, Father. Bless us for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.